Too Long at the Fair, that's Natalie Merchant's version of Joel Zoss's song, and Joel Zoss is on the line. Hey, Joel, how you doing? I'm fine, man. Good to see you. You too. Now, the first time I heard Too Long at the Fair is from Bonnie Raitt's second album from 1972, and, and you wrote that song. So congratulations. <laughs> it, it, it's true. When did you find out Natalie Merchant uh, did a version of it? You know, somebody told me, oh, maybe even as long as a year ago, somebody told me. And um, I hadn't bothered to track it down. I mean, this song has been covered by hundreds of people. But I, I, I do particularly like Natalie. Uh, eventually, a friend tracked it down and sent me a, a YouTube um, link. Were, and so it's up, up on YouTube. Were you surprised when you heard it? Um, no, I was happy. I thought I was happy that she did a good job. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it may be a live take. It's on a, it's on a box set that she released called Rarities. And I think it has a lot of little bits of odds and ends, including live things. And I think it may be a live take. I think it may be a performance take. I'm not sure. So you don't know Natalie Merchant? No, I don't know her at all. As far as I know, we've, we've never met. You, d- you do know Bonnie Wright, though. Oh, no, I know Bonnie very well. Yeah, no, we're dear friends. When you wrote, when you wrote, why did you write Too Long at the Fair? I wrote Too Long at the Fair, I wrote it in 19, I think it was 1969. I think so. I remember writing it very clearly because I wrote it in, it was one of those songs that just arrived. You know, when you, when you talk to songwriters, I once, I once talked to, um, I can't remember his name right now, the guy that wrote Wind Beneath My Wings, right? Which was this huge, huge country hit and then crossover national hit. And he said, well, we were just talking and he said, well, Joel, there are songs that come from the hand and songs that come from the heart, right? Now this is a Nashville pro, right? So songs that come from the hand are ones that you craft because songwriting is a craft. And the ones that come from the heart are, are the ones where you're just lucky and something comes through and you catch it. Where were yeah. you? What were you doing in 1969? 1969, I was where, where most of the song was written. I was in a little house uh, halfway up a mountain up above a little village in Tuscany. I, I, was, having, I was having kind of a hard time emotionally. Um, my best friend had just been murdered by a woman I introduced him to. And it was kind of upsetting. And that really isn't the trigger for the song, except that I was kind of not in a very happy place. What were you doing in Tuscany? Uh, writing. That's why I was there. I knew this village. Uh, a, a friend of mine from the States, uh, uh, an Italian-American guy, 
uh, had invited me over years ago. And this is a village that I've returned to over decades. Um, I was there a couple of years ago. In fact, I've been working more in Italy the last few years before the pandemic uh, than I was in the United States. And all, all through Tuscany, I, I, I connected with a, a blues band in Tuscany and we worked together and it was just great. And they share their bookings with me. And um, I got established enough to be making my own bookings there. And when the pandemic arrived, 2020 was gonna be a very busy year for me in the United States and in Italy. And of course, all those bookings went down the tubes, all gone. How did uh, Too Long at the Fair fall into Bonnie Raitt's hands? I was playing at, at uh, the Club 47, which the Club Passim, the, the famous club in Cambridge. And it was uh, owned and operated at the time by a guy named Bob Donlan. And I was playing there, um, you know, just doing a, a solo. I think I was playing with uh, Tony Markellos, who later played bass with, um, uh, wow, well, what is that? What is that band with Trey, with Trey Anastasia and, and, and those folks? Anyway, I was, I was playing a gig at, at, at this famous folk club and Dick Waterman, who um, was Bonnie's manager at the time, while I was performing, he was talking to Bob Donlan, the club owner, to try to get a gig for Bonnie. And Bob was resistant because this was a very serious coffee house. And you could have coffee and you could have nice, nice drinks, soft drinks, but there was no drinking there and there was no rowdiness. And he said that Bonnie's crowd was too rowdy, a bunch of drinkers and thugs and whatever, you know, because she played the blues. And the funny thing is, Bonnie never got a gig there. But while, while, while Dick Waterman was talking to Bob, he heard me sing too long at the fair. And after my set, um, I was walking back to the dressing room and he came up to me and he said, hey, um, I represent a young uh, gal named Bonnie Raitt and she's about to record her second album for Warner Brothers. Do you think we could get a copy of that song? I think that she might like it. And the interesting synchronicity part of it was that that afternoon before the show, I'd made a demo of the song on a little reel-to-reel, -reel, we had reel-to-reel -reel tape machines, you know. Anyway, so I actually had um, like a, a, a three inch or a five inch tape, uh, you know, on a reel to reel of the song. And I handed it to him and he gave it to Bonnie. And Bonnie and I were both living in Cambridge at the time. And that's how I met Bonnie. And that's how, that's how the song happened. But it was all, as you can see, it was all just serendipitous, the whole thing. It was great. Joel Zoss is on the line, and Joel, you, you're going to be playing, uh, you have two gigs coming up this next Sunday at the Mandel Public Library in downtown West Palm Beach. That's a free show at 2 o'clock in the afternoon next Sunday. You'll be playing with your upright bass player, Jeff Atkins, and then in North Miami next Friday on the 9th of October at Lunastar Cafe. Have you been able to play out at all this past year? No. These, I, I'd have to look at a calendar, but these, these will be my first gigs in at least a year and a half. How have you been doing? How have you been coping? I think I kind of lost my mind, but I'm okay. You know, it's an interesting situation. I've been down here in South Florida for a few years, as you know. But almost everybody I know here is a musician or a radio person 
you know, I know people in the media and I know musicians and we all closed down. And, in, and I didn't realize how fully that's my social life here. Those are the friends I have here. It's, it's all pretty much through music. Whereas before I moved down here, I'd lived in the same place for 25 years. I knew all kinds of people, right? I go way back with everybody. And I, I lived not too far actually from a lot of childhood scenes too. So, you know, I was very connected that way. And so suddenly all of these social connections were just severed. It wasn't only that I lost my livelihood, my, <laughs> my, means, my means of making a living, um, my means of self-expression, my whole social life really, it just got very, very quiet. So I had to, I had to deal with that. I, I, you know, I'm kind of on the other side of that. It's going on for so long. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to these shows with a little trepidation too. But it's always interesting when you have to take a break and you come back. Have you have but, you been uh, writing new songs? Um, I'm always writing. You know, it's I, I can't tell whether it's a curse or a blessing, but there's always there's always something going on. The other thing that I did during the long pandemic was when I when I really realized how long it was going to go on, I had I had a a, a book that I'd finished about two thirds or three quarters that I'd begun many years ago. And I always thought if I ever got the time, I'd go back and I'd finish it. And guess what? I got the time. <laughs> Was it uh, fiction or nonfiction? It's, it's uh, beyond fiction. It's fiction. <laughs> it, it's fiction. And I just completed a complete draft a few days ago. So I have a complete draft that, that I'm pretty happy with. You know, with, with books, it's interesting when writing books, you know, you write it forward and then you write it backwards. And so there's still more work to be done. But once you've got once you've got the main thing on paper or on disc or whatever it is now, you know, you've, you've got it. You got to start somewhere. You got to get it out of your head. I, w- I was surprised because uh, I know you as a musician and I was right. surprised to know that you're also an author. You have a few books under your belt. Um, I've authored or co-authored over 30 books, lots of articles. There was a time when I was living in Massachusetts when I had two little girls at home and I didn't want to be on the road as a musician. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to miss my, my kids' childhood. I was watching some of my friends miss their kids' childhoods for their careers. And it didn't seem like a good idea to me. And I'm sure I'd be much better off as a musician and, and as far as my career is concerned, if I just kept trucking. But I didn't want to miss the kids. And so uh, I, I, I've always had connections in the literary world. I knew a couple of editors and I started working a lot with one editors who was just feeding me um, nonfiction projects. And we were banging out books on all kinds of things. And so for over, over a decade, for about a decade and a half, I was still gigging locally and I always write music, but for about a decade and a half, what I did was write books. Some of them have done really well and some of them haven't. I have a one novel that, that was published based on that novel. I was, uh, I became a national, uh, uh, let me see, let me say that, uh, uh, an, a national endowment for the art fellow of creative writing. I am. That's kind of like a state poet. They don't give you a sash and a medal, but that's what it is. National Endowment uh, Fellow of Creative Writing. And I won, and I, I did, have, has had some short stories published too. 
and I won a Penn Short Story Award at one point, you know. So I've done a lot. I've really had these two careers. You know, music is about promoting. Well, every, any career is about promoting yourself. But I, lots of people know me as a writer, Michael, and have no idea that I've ever written a song or played guitar or sung, and vice versa. Lots of people only know me as a musician. And then they found out that my editor and I wrote the uh, World Book Almanac of the Vietnam War. And they say, oh, that's your name. You know, oh, and sometimes, sometimes it's really funny because it'll be, are you Joel Zoss the writer? You know, or are you Joel Zoss the musician? You know, because you see my name on the back of a book or on the back of an album, you know, so it's some, some people make the connection. Do you enjoy one over the other, writing or, or singing? I would have to, I would have to say no when, when, when I'm happening in in either medium, that's just my best. I'm just I'm just thrilled. That that's what I do. There's something so magical about getting lost in writing. You know, I'm sitting in front of my computer and I, I have no idea what galaxy I'm in, and um, it's it's just thrilling. Something is happening, and it's the same thing when when I'm writing or or, or performing. The interesting thing about performing, Michael, which you know because you're on the spot, you're on the air, you know. Um, you're in real time. It when, when you're on stage, it forces you to be present, whether you want to be or not. You know, the worst thing you can do when you're on stage performing is think. If you, as soon as you start thinking, you're lost. <laughs> Joel Zoss is on the line, and he will be performing next Sunday, the third of October, at the Mandel Public Library Auditorium. That's in downtown West Palm Beach on Clematis Street. That's going to be free at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And then Joel has a show Friday at the, on October 9th at Lunastar Cafe in North Miami. Do you remember the first time you were on stage performing? Well, in my early childhood years, we lived in this community in, in, in New Jersey. And we had our own little library and a little farmhouse and there were there were productions. It was it, what was then rural New Jersey, and a lot of uh, creative people from New York and from Brooklyn had shacks, summer shacks out there, so they'd come out there for the summer. So we had some very serious thespians and and directors and people, and there were little little productions there. So that I, I wasn't it was not as a as a singer, my my first appearances on stage. But um, yeah, that's probably, you know, I was probably like seven or eight. Your guitar but, uh, style is is like a, uh, a finger-picking blues style. Uh, yeah. Are you carrying on a tradition? Have you seen some of the legendary blues performers growing up in the uh, New York, New Jersey area? My mom, um, I have to credit a lot my, my musical education. I give my mom a lot of credit. I grew up listening to Billie Holiday and to Pete Seeger and to uh, Josh White Sr. And my mom was a big fan of Josh White Sr. And when I was a little boy, we'd go to see Josh White perform. Now this was a guy, he was a real thing, you know. He used to lead Blind, Blind Lemon Jefferson around. And uh, Josh and I had, a, he kind of liked me and I kind of liked him, I, 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 I worshiped him. He actually showed me things on the guitar, you know, but I don't have, you know, Bonnie, Bonnie, for instance, um, spent a lot of time with Fred McDowell. 
they were they were just great great friends and i'm sure she learned from him too and i know several several people from my cohort who got to hung, hang out with the the old blues masters with furry lewis you know with the wonderful guys so i didn't have i didn't have that much contact but Josh was Josh was important to me, and I really I fell in love with Lead Belly at a certain point, and that's really when my guitar playing started. I used to dream about playing with Lead Belly. I got a twelve-string guitar. I tried to figure out what he was doing. Um, on more than one occasion, on on two distinct occasions that I remember, I couldn't figure out how he was playing something. I dreamt playing it with him, and seeing the fingering. And when I woke up, I could do it. Wow. Okay, so this is, you know, the creative life, you know, this and, you know, it makes makes me a misfit for most other things. But but I, I get to do that. Did you play in the Greenwich Village folk scene? Did you get to play in the city? Um, I wasn't I wasn't so much in that part of the, just because of where I was living. I wasn't around there that much. Uh, later, I played a bunch. I mean, I've played a bunch at the other end and the bitter end and and folk city and, and, and those places. But I wasn't on the scene, you know. I was somebody passing through. But I knew I knew a lot of people. I knew some people down there. When did you decide music would be a full-time profession? Before before you had your children, when did you decide yeah. that would be it? You know, I, I I never really decided. It's it's just kind of what what I did, you know. And you know, people. Bonnie started recording my songs. People got interested in what I was doing, you know. So I just kind of followed my nose. I've always had kind of two loves and two professions. And there's always, some, sometimes there's a nice balance between music and writing and pro writing prose. And sometimes there isn't. Sometimes it's all one way. If you, if you shut down all the venues and tell me I can't play anywhere, um, I'll still keep playing at home, but I'm gonna end up writing a lot, prose, you know? Sometimes I think the only way I can understand who I am, what I am, what I'm doing is to create something outside of myself and then hear it or read it. And, and, and that's my mirror. What do you mean and by then, that? What do you mean? I've never, I'm one who's never really been able to escape for more, more, more than momentarily the major existential questions. Who are we? Um, where are we? Where did we come from? What are we doing here? And where are we going? You know, I don't, I don't have any kind of routine. It drives people crazy, you know, people around me sometimes. But I just kind of swing from branch to branch. And in order for me, sometimes, sometimes I'll write a song, Michael, or a poem. Um, sometimes I'll write a song and I'll realize a week or two later that the reason I wrote it was that I was trying to understand something and I couldn't do it until I, until I created some, an artifact that I could examine and that in examining that artifact, I could see where I was at. I could see what was going on. Is that, did I answer the question? I think so. Joel Zoss <laughs> is on the line, but, but I'm curious. I mean, the United States have been going through some tumultuous times lately with the war and with the presidency and that, but that doesn't enter into your music at all. Well, it does. I mean, there's no way to keep it out. During the time I was mostly making a living um, writing books, I also had a reggae band in Western Massachusetts. And we were very political. We were very, we were very outspoken, you know. 
Bob Marley was our God. And, you know, and I, I've never, I've never made any bones about um, where I stand politically. You could, you can find in my songs wh where I'm at, but I'm not a protest songwriter per se, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing right now is watching maybe the greatest empire that's ever existed just disintegrate before our eyes. Humans do this, you know, you know, there are always these questions. What happened to the Mayans? They had this wonderful civilization. What happens to the Anasazis? They had this wonderful civilization. What happened to the Babylonians? They had this wonderful civilization. You know what happened to them? They're humans. I think we just do ourselves in from time to time. We see something really great. Oh, let's wreck that. You know, so I'm not quite sure what's going on here, but it's a big mess. And part of my point of view politically was shaped by the years I lived in Spain under Franco. I'm one of the very few Americans I know who's lived under a tyrant. This guy was a complete dictator. He could look at you and say, off with his head and his head was off. You know, His police could do whatever they wanted to you and they didn't have to answer to anybody. As an American, I was pretty much out of the way, but what I saw happening with, with, with the Spanish people and the, the Catalonians I lived with was really horrible. I saw the way that, that autocrats and tyrants cultivate their population for the next move. They, they keep teaching you more restrictions. You know, it's very, very interesting. It's very interesting. So, you know, having, having lived under a really vicious dictator, Franco was such a vicious dictator that he upset Hitler and Goebbels. Even after he won the Civil War, he kept killing people. I mean, just so many of them. He kept bringing in these ruthless uh, mercenaries from Morocco and telling them to exterminate villages that he didn't like and towns that he didn't like. It's a really extraordinary stuff, you know. And so I have a very visceral connection to, um, to tyranny and I have a very deep respect for democracy. I think it's the best we can do as humans. Heavily regulated democracy is probably the sanest we can do as human beings. That's what you see in Northern Europe, for instance. You see democracies that are heavily regulated and here there, there'd be people that would call them socialists or whatever, but they're not really, they're just democracies. You know, you know in, in, in Copenhagen, instead of, instead of your family paying $10,000 a year for health insurance, you pay two thousand a year into taxes, and everybody's covered. You know, it, 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 it is extraordinary in this country that we don't have national health, that we don't have childcare. As far as discussions about abortions in France, um, for instance, an EU country, in France, uh, birth control is free to the age of twenty-five, and abortions are free. There isn't a lot of discussion about it. It's it, it's part of a woman's life, it's part of medical reality, you know, and we're a very interesting country here, but I, it's not a unique observation for me to, to say that I, I, I'm seeing us tear us apart, we're tearing us apart, and, and there's something about humans, I don't know. It is it, we're, bizarre. We're, we're, humans are humans, you know, humans are humans. You want to know what happened to the great ancient civilizations? They were run by humans, that's what happened to them. Ha, 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 ha.
<laughs> it wasn't Martians that came in and screwed things up, Michael. Well, do you have hope? Oh yeah, I I, I always have hope. You know, I'm. I'm 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 hoping to die without a great deal of pain. You know? <laughs> I, 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 I I have hope. I'm not really I'm not really that dark. It's hard to see a lot of unhappy people. And it's hard to see a lot of unfairness. You know, I, I. But I have plenty of hope. I have plenty of hope. Gautama Buddha said something really interesting that I that I think about a lot, which was that in phenomenological reality, which is our three-dimensional reality, so-called, everything comes in pairs of opposites. Good, bad, up, down, true, false. Everything comes in pairs of opposites. There's one coin, but it's got two sides, you know? And there's this tug. Humans are pairs of opposites too. We got this dark side and we got this light side. We can, we can do a Holocaust and um, we can do what we did with the Marshall Plan after World War II and, and rebuild these destroyed countries, you know. So the choice is kind of ours. I think people get terribly confused. Joel Zoss is on the line. I'm going to play a song from your CD, but I have one more question for you, a little bit on the lighter side. You now live in Florida. What, what brought you to Florida? My beloved wife had died very young of cancer, and I was, I woke up in, in a four-story house on top of a mountain in the foothills of the Berkshires, and um, I lived there for a while. I, I, I was just kind of at loose ends. I didn't really know what to do, and a friend of mine who was a professional sailor and was looking after some boats for somebody down here invited me down. I'd never been to Florida. Actually, the first time I was with Florida... You know, you asked me before if, if I, if I'd, you know, had the opportunity to, to know any of the great masters. Well, I toured with B.B. King. I opened more shows for him probably than any other act is what, is what these people told me. So I, I would open shows for him solo on my wooden guitar. And then he'd come out with his nine-piece kick-ass band. And, and, <laughs> and he was so wonderful and so generous. And I, I learned so much from him. He was just a, a great guy. But anyway, the first time I ever came to Florida was I, I came down here and I did a gig in, uh, I was either Naples or Fort Myers. And the next night we played in Melbourne. I rented a car and drove across. And then uh, after the gig in Melbourne, this is in May, and where I was living in New England, uh, I still had feet of snow on the ground. And uh, I, talked, I was talking to my, my daughter who was in college at the time after the show. And uh, I'm driving to the airport and I've got a couple of extra hours. And she says, well, go for a swim. She'd already instructed me to bring my bathing suit, which I'd forgotten. You don't usually bring your bathing suit on a gig. But she said, go for a swim. And so I did. So I stopped and, and, and went for a delicious swim in, in the Atlantic in May and flew home with salt water on me because I had to change in the car and, and you know return the car and get on the plane. And I said, that's pretty interesting, you know, because I love the water. Anyway, then a, a, a year or so later, a friend invited me down and uh, I, I've dealt with asthma for about half of my life and it's not much fun and it's worse in cold weather. And I was down here hanging out with my buddy and he had a couple of bikes and we were biking around and I was forgetting to take my asthma medicine. 
because the air down here was so nice and it was so warm. And uh, something just clicked and I said, well, I think, I'll, I think I'll come down here. I think I'll move down here. I, I was kind of emotionally bereft and, and needed, needed a change of scene really. And I came down here. And the interesting thing, Michael, is that I, I didn't know anybody when I came down here. I knew maybe two people. And then I started showing up at the musical venues here. And immediately I, I became part of the family here. I mean, Graham, Graham Drought refers to me as, a, as a, an invasive species. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I got here. And Joel Zoss has a couple of shows coming up. His first time in a while, this uh, next Sunday at the Mandel Public Library in the auditorium in downtown West Palm Beach with upright bass player Jeff Atkins. That's on Clematis Street. That's a free show next Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. And then at the Luna Star Cafe in North Miami at 8 p.m. That's uh, October 9th. 